The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Sports Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericasports.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Ticking Stock with Kelly McMillan. If the name sounds like a business show to you, then you've got it all wrong. Kelly McMillan is the principal of McMillan Fiberglass Stocks and will talk about shooting for fun, competition, hunting, and self-defense. Now, here is your host, Kelly McMillan. Welcome to Taking Stock with Kelly McMillan. I'm your host, and for the next hour, we'll be discussing all things related to guns, shooting, hunting, and the firearms industry. Uh, I'm joined by a guy that uh, has been around the valley for a while. Anybody who's ever shot at Ben Avery shooting range probably has seen him on the range. Uh, Matt Schwartzkopf, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me on, Kelly. Really glad to have you. I'm really looking forward to it. As I said before, um, everybody who's ever spent much time at Ben Avery's probably seen you on the range because you've been out there for a while. Uh, but you got some great news to talk about, and uh, I want to get to that in a minute. Right now, why don't you just uh, give us a little background, give us a history, where you grew up, uh, how you got involved in guns. Um, I grew up here in Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, my dad and my whole family was an avid hunter, um, and we were, really were an archery family. My aunt was on the U.S. archery team. Um, unfortunately, I was never really good, but I really enjoyed shooting rifles, um, and me and my dad would have a lot of informal, uh, informal competitions as I was growing up. Um, never really got into formal competition um, in my childhood days, but I did hunt a lot with my dad, and that's kind of where I got around and introduced to firearms. So you spent some time at the range. You kind of got comfortable there. Um, from what I understand, you started at Ben Avery um, close to a dozen years ago. Uh, how did that come about? Actually, that's a very interesting story. I was actually going to U of A, um, to get my wildlife biology degree, and uh, the Arizona Game and Fish, with, which owns and operates the Ben Avery Shooting Facility, um, they had internships, summer internships, and I applied for a summer internship, and having shot at Ben Avery all my life, uh, they actually offered me an internship there, and I started that summer, and then at the end of that summer, they actually gave me a part-time range master job. Well, awesome. So, so you went to school to become... Uh, wildlife biologist because you enjoyed hunting and being out in the field and so it was kind of a way for you to to make a, a job out of something that you really had a passion for yes exactly that's cool i uh, said so you, you get your degree actually i'm about 20 shy, credits shy of my degree uh my career with game and fish kind of took off and went a different direction well you know that's a, a terrific uh story and you know you can finish that degree anytime you want to i, I know you can um but the fact is, is that you have a, a, a dream career that you really enjoy, um, and it wasn't required that you had a, a degree, so uh, you know it, it's worked out in your favor. Let's talk about the position that you hold now. Uh, currently, I am the statewide shooting range administrator. Uh, what I do is I administer all the state-owned ranges by the Arizona Game and Fish, and I also provide technical expertise uh, to other public ranges throughout the state of Arizona. How many ranges is that? 
Uh, the Arizona Game of Fish owns 10 different shooting ranges throughout the state. You know, I would have been probably wrong by about 50% if you had asked me to guess. I would have said maybe five. Um, but it is really cool that we have as many uh, facilities for people to shoot out there. And, and I know that there are some private ranges and there are some other things, but it's a big part of Arizona Game and Fish to find appropriate places and promote those places for people to be able to shoot within their communities. Uh, yes, that's actually one of the big reasons behind our shooting range program is providing places for people to go and recreate uh, and recreate, take part in recreational shooting all throughout the state, um, in every part of the state, and then also partake in hunter education and educational programs as well. You know, I had Larry Voiles on the show not too long ago. Uh, is it safe to call him your boss? Uh, yes, he, he's my boss. He's probably my boss's boss's boss. Okay. So. But, you know, I, I think everybody who works for the Arizona Game and Fish at some point can say Larry's the boss since, since he is the uh, director, right? Yes. Okay. Uh, I think it was Larry that talked about how committed they are to finding places within a, a certain distance of a community for them to be able to go and, and shoot. And I can't remember what that is. Do you have any more information for us it's, on that? Uh, basically, we actually put together a map of all the places that you can shoot in the state of Arizona, not only Arizona Game and Fish ranges, but also uh, public and private ranges um, throughout the whole state. And we drew a 30-mile radius around that to try and determine where ranges are needed throughout the state compared to population densities. Do you have a plan, uh, a long-term plan on how many ranges you want to add and, and where they might be? Um, we don't have a long-term plan. Our main goal is to uh, identify areas where we do need a range next to a population area and Working with uh, federal, local agencies to try and determine, um, or to determine where those areas are, and acquire land to build shooting ranges next to those population densities that do not have a, a shooting range. Is there any way uh, an individual, as a shooter, who maybe would would love to help you get a range in his area? Is there anything he can do to to help provide you information that that would be useful to you? Uh, the best thing that any individual could do is start partnering with local businesses, partnering with locals, and basically get an organization or uh, a group of individuals that want to have this range and then start bringing it up to city council meetings or even Arizona Game of Fish. Uh, contact me. Um, I can tell you one thing. that We do have a lot of organizations out there that they're, they're working um, to try and acquire the land, it just—it's a long road um, to do it. But the more people you have uh, that are working towards it, is better. As just one individual, it's going to be a lot harder. Well, you know, I, I know that there are some communities that are probably less likely to have a bunch of shooters, like Scottsdale. I, I don't know how high that ranks on uh, the uh, county's uh, list of desirable places. But then there are some more rural or less urban areas that would probably more likely be a, a really great place to put one because a higher percentage of the people in that population are, are shooters. So I just didn't know whether there was a place that on the Arizona Game and Fish website where they can say, we want to range in our area, if that makes any sense. 
Yeah, there's no place really okay. to do that. It's more start getting the, the organization together and talking to uh, representatives in the area and basically getting your voice heard about that. Well, we talked a lot about your business so far, but now let's talk about your passion. Uh, you had talked earlier about shooting when you were younger, um, just informal competitions, no official uh, competitive shooting, but that's not the case anymore. Uh, no, I actually do a lot of competitive shooting now. Uh, when I started with Ben Avery, I started getting into competitive shooting, and now it's pretty much my second job. Well, let, what kind of competitive shooting do you do? Right now, I'm strictly shooting uh, F-Class FTR uh, division, uh, which is, stands for target rifle. So you you started shooting how long ago? Uh, I started shooting F-Class in 2011. So um, you've made a pretty quick rise to the top because uh, I've seen you with your Team USA shirt on, so I know that uh, you must be a pretty good shooter. Um, well... I've always been a good shooter, but when I got started, I had great mentors. And one thing nice about this sport is everyone's out there is willing to help you out. And I, I listened and learned a lot from them, and it, it paid off in the end. Well, I don't know if you uh, heard the um, show when I had the uh, full bore show on with uh, Dan Bramley and uh, – uh, you know Ian Clem, and and he was, and I know you know him really well because we're going to talk about that in a little bit. And uh, Nancy on the show uh, to talk about all the different disciplines that you might see all at the same time. Well, that's one of the coolest things about F class and and full bore in, in particular, uh, with the high power competition going on at the same time that the F Open is going on, with the same time that the F. FDR is going on. So that's, it's really cool. You can walk up and down the line and you basically three, see three different matches going on at once. So that's really cool. Um, but you haven't spent most of your time shooting lately. So what have you been doing? Well, actually, two years ago, I tried out for the USFTR team uh, as a shooter um, and made the team. But there's about two dozen shooters on that team that are all top of their class. And one of the things I really enjoy with shooting is coaching. Um, I expressed my interest to the, the captain of the team. And uh, about a couple months later, he extended the offer for me to become a coach on the U.S. FTR team. So people don't really understand if they've never seen a high power match or an FTR match, how critical the coaching is. And let's define the word coaching. Um, it doesn't mean telling the guy he's doing a good job or telling him how to shoot. When we talk about coaching in F-class or high power, we're specifically talking about reading the wind and communicating that information to the shooter while they're shooting a string. Is that correct? That is correct. Now, that's that's hard to do. They've got flags out and stuff. And, and give me a little bit of a rundown of, of how you communicate with the shooter, what you tell them how he you know, effectively takes that information and adjusts what he's doing? Well, there's a very uh, small communication between the shooter and myself. Uh, we know, we know, know the commands. We have specific commands for everything we're doing. Um, basically, what I'm going to do is either put uh, some dialage, windage on the scope, and then I'll tell him where to hold off from there. Uh, for instance, uh, if I look downrange and I notice that we need to hold a half a minute right, 
I'll actually tell the shooter to write, which actually distinguishes the lines in which they need to hold. So the first line would be the edge of the X ring, and the second line would be the edge of the 10 ring. Uh, another command might be two and a half right. So it would be halfway between the, the 10 ring and the 9 ring. And that's where the shooter was would hold. So what do those numbers actually refer to? A minute of angle? Or? Uh, actually, those are referring to the lines on the okay, actual Okay, so target. it has no specific meaning other than you, you're going to take the lines that are on the target and either count one, two, or a half. Yes. Okay. And uh, basically, what I, the target that we're shooting, we're shooting a uh, half-a-minute target is the X-ring. So when I look down range and I see a pickup of a half-a-minute, um, I know that this many lines is equal to a half a minute, and therefore that's what I'll, sh- I'll tell the shooter to hold off. Okay. You know, I've, I've heard a lot of military stuff. We've, we've had a lot of military trainers come in and, and teach classes for um, customers of ours. Uh, when I had the rifle company and, you know, they talk about holding in mills and I know there's MOA. And, and so I just wanted to be clear that those numbers that you're talking about pertain specifically to FTR because yes. your target's a different size than the open target. Well, actually the F class targets are the same. It's the, the sling target and the palm and fulmore target that are actually uh, twice as big. Okay, so the F open and FTR, same targets. Yes. Okay. Same size X-ring? Same size X-ring. Um, I know that there's a difference in the way that they're scored a little bit, is there? Uh, or am I wrong? No. Okay. Uh, one of the things that, that people mention when you talk about the difference between the, the open scoring and the FTR scoring is that, well, you got to remember that, you know, that that's open. But of recently, I know some of the teams have been shooting as good, and if not as good, but really close to the same scores as the open shooters. Uh, so yes. shooting from a bipod is not, is not as big a disadvantage as it was when this sport started. No, not at all. I think that's a tribute to how well the manufacturers have really upped their game to be able to participate in this market. Because if you're going to use a bipod, one you be able to you have to be able to have it quickly adjustable and from the shooting position, and it's got to be lightweight because these guns are only you know right at 18 pounds. Yes. So yeah, I'm I'm really proud of all of the manufacturers out there who've decided to get into this game and want to compete for the you know to make these guys better, which is really cool. Um, we talked a little bit about um, reading wind and how you communicate that. One of the things that I want to make clear is that there's only a couple or three coaches on the the eight man team. There, yes, there is three coaches. There's two front coaches and one back coach. So this is actually a more prestigious job than actually even making the the team as a shooter because you've got fewer chances to be on that team. So yeah. I've got to tell you, if nobody else has told you, I'm really proud of you, Matt, because that's a real accomplishment, especially if you really aspire to be a good coach and you have that uh, sort of um, drive more than to be a shooter. Yeah. I know a lot of shooters have told me that they they just fear coaching. And I'm, I'm a rather new coach. I just started, and I've really enjoyed it. And I have actually feel like I've really accomplished a lot so far. 
Well, I know you have some really good guys to work with, Paul Phillips on the U.S. team, and um, you know, I don't know if Brian Litz is shooting or coaching, he's but coach. but he's a great wind reader too because yeah. I've worked with him in, in that uh, capacity as well. Um, so there's something I'd like to talk to you about. I've noticed the uh, last couple of times I've been on the range during an F-class match, I've noticed that uh, a coach will reach over and turn the turrets on the shooter scope. Now, no communication that I can see or hear has gone on, but he's trusting you know what you're doing and you're trusting that he's going to do what you tell him. Otherwise, not knowing exactly where his turrets are set could be a real problem. Uh, yes, actually, that's one of the team dynamics of team shooting is everybody has a role. Um, shooters, their, their role is to execute the perfect shot. As a coach, my role is to keep them centered on that target. Um, and sometimes if the wind picks up or lets off, I will reach down there and I'll actually take a minute or two off the scope or maybe even put on a minute. Um, but one thing we all, I always do is I verify I added or I took off a minute with the shooter because they actually are watching what I'm doing. Uh, just that way we have that double check um, balance. Have I seen guys on the line with a pencil and pad during a string? Do they keep track of stuff like that, or is it mostly done mentally? It depends on what type of match we're shooting in. Sometimes we'll have plotters uh, or a back coach who will be taking notes on all that kind of stuff. For your smaller matches, a four-man team match, uh, it's just done mentally by the coach. Um, usually there will be a four-man team match with four shooters and one coach, and uh, I just keep track of it in my head. There's something to be said about getting five guys to work together doing anything. It's a tremendous undertaking. Anytime you do something with five different people all trying to achieve the same goal. Now with FTR and F open, they both have four man matches. And one of the coolest things that I've ever been associated with, and I only say that I was associated with it because it just happened that this particular four-man team were all shooting McMillan stocks. And I know you know what I'm talking about because it just so happened that you were coaching these guys uh, at the last uh, Burger Southwest Nationals and this particular team. And I have to admit, I don't think that they went by the t a team name that they normally shoot by because uh, – so do me a favor. Tell me the team name by what they went. We know who the shooters are, but we'll talk about that as well. The team name was actually North by Southwest. It was kind of we made it up the night before the team match. Uh, just kind of there's a bunch of couple guys from Wisconsin, and then we had a couple guys from the Southwest uh, and one from Ohio. So we just went with the name. Well, and there are a lot of teams out there that shoot all the time, like the Bulls or – Team Michigan or Team Virginia, and any match that you go to, you see those teams represented, and and the players may change a little bit from time to time, but the teams stay a team. So that's why I was a little hesitant to to come up with that name because I knew it wasn't one that I'd ever heard of. But now let's talk about the shooters. Almost everybody had heard about the shooters. Um, Dan Lentz, um, from the time he he put his FTR on his stock, his shooting just was top notch. I know he went to Canada last year and, and placed second overall and, and won, won one of the matches, uh, just was on fire then, mm -hmm. um, which makes me really happy because we had just before the match talked about him putting the, F, the uh, 
the exit stock on his rifle and he called me up and he says, Kelly, I've got a little bit of a problem. And, uh, and then he said, we'll talk about it in Canada. And when I got there, he says, I'll forget it. I've solved the problem. So whatever it was, he seemed to have got it worked out because he shot extremely well. Ian Clem, uh, Ian was shooting a left-handed prone for a long time. And you know, you're familiar with that stock because you, you're a lefty as well. Uh, but I hadn't made, uh, an exit in left hand, right at first i want to make sure we had it right when we did the right handers and from all the feedback we got i went ahead and make made left-handed stock so you and ian were the the ones who got the first two left-handed exits and the first set of matches was the southwest nationals that ian shot with that and, and ian shot lights out oh he shot lights out yeah also on the team was dan polable who's been really helpful to me in, in putting projects together and, and helping me coordinate with uh, different members on the team and uh, just a super nice guy. And, and I will admit, I don't know Ian's father's first name. It's Ken. 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 Okay. Yeah. Ken, Ken Clem. Yep. And, uh, what was so impressive with me is that, um, you know, Ian loves to shoot and he loves to shoot with his dad. And it's one of those bonding experiences that you get. And, and I, I so much appreciate when, when guys get to spend that kind of quality time. But Ken was not holding this team back at all. And the fact that he was probably twice everybody else's age. Well, Dan Polable's a little older than that. But, but, but Ken was much older than everybody else on the team. They felt comfortable enough with his ability to shoot that they, they were good to have him on the team. And um, why don't you tell us everything that they won during that match? Oh, wow. Um, well, Ken, I just want to point out one thing. His gun, and with that stock, he was lights out. He was right up there with everyone else, all the U.S. team shooters. He was placed high. Um, as a team, the North by Southwest team, uh, we actually won the Palma team match, four-man team match, the thousand-yard four-man team match, and then the team aggregate match. Uh, in doing so, we broke two match records and then also broke a, the national Palma record. I don't know if everybody listening understands how big a feat that really was, and especially a team that had probably never shot on the same team and pretty... I'm, I feel pretty safe in saying we had probably never had this, the coach te coach that team at the same time. Is that true? I've never coached all four of them at the same time, no. Well, I, I want to tell everybody listening that you have to have so much confidence in every member of the team and in the coach to be able to pull off anything near that. Uh, th that's a big feather in your cap that those guys were willing to lay down on the line let you read the wind and and tell him where them where to put their shots and be confident that they were going to be able to have a chance to win and not only have a chance but just really clean the board yeah and it's funny how that came about because ian and me or ian shot for me in the canadian nationals last year in the 2016 and uh, i actually that was my first time ever coaching as a coach for team usa i coached a four-man team and i actually won the canadian nationals with four other or four U.S. team members, one of them being Ian, and he called me up after that and said, hey, uh, I don't really have a team for the Southwest Nationals, and you're one of the best coaches uh, that's not really designated to a certain team. Would you like to coach my team? And I can tell you one thing. I was truly honored just to be asked that, and just the way he put it as, you know, one of the most best 
coaches that's not designated to a certain team. Well, I know that the Team USA is um, kind of winding down into the final selection. Like you said, there was a couple of dozen guys that were on the team all vying for eight spots and they've got to be really close to making that decision because the match is coming up in august so uh, the world championships up in canada uh the fact that you proved yourself um not only in canada last year but at the southwest nationals this year i think everybody who gets chosen to shoot on that team isn't going to have a problem laying down on the line with you calling the win that's just got to be a really great feeling for you it really is a great feeling, and you know, I really have to thank a lot of my mentors out there and the people that taught me throughout the years. Uh, one of them being Nancy Top Tompkins, who's one of the, the best wind readers I know. Um, so it's just one of the things I always like to point out. I've done it several times on the show. I'm going to do it again. Is that women in the shooting sports can compete equally with men and and actually win uh, not only in high power and f class and and the tompkins family and and the the gallagher's and mid tompkins um the, you know he's he's done a really outstanding job of preparing his women the women in his family to to perform at the highest level the good thing about uh, shooting is that it doesn't matter what type of competition you're in some of the best shotgun shooters in the world are women i know that the uh, high power um, silhouette championships have been won by women a number of times. Uh, there's a, a shooter right now that has won both the small bore and the high power silhouette championships six, seven, eight times. I can't recall her name off the top of my head, but she's a terrific shooter. And uh, women can actually compete side by side with men. Yes, they can, and usually they kick our butts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know what it is that they have that we don't, but I think it's the fact that they don't put so much pressure on themselves uh, is that they're just out there to have fun. Yeah, and another thing in my career working uh, as a range master on a range, actually one of the things I found between the differences between women and men is women will stop and listen and take in that advice and then men are, I don't know if it's our egos, we're supposed to be able to shoot, you know, when we're born. Um, we don't listen. And instead, we try and learn, we have to learn the hard way. Well, I agree with you on that. I know my dad used to tell a story about there's three things that you can't tell a man he can't do. And and shooting and fighting is, is two of the three. I'm not going to mention the other one. <laughs> but I think you get the idea is that there are certain innate things that we, we as men feel like we're supposed to be good at. And uh, I know that there are some guys who just don't like to compete against women. And that in itself may be an advantage for the women yeah. if they've got them beaten before they ever get to the line. Well, we've got just a couple of minutes left. Um, anything else you want to talk about? I know the world championships are coming up in uh, Connaught in uh, Ontario um, in August. Mm-hmm. Looking forward to that. You're you're going to be there as a member of Team USA as a coach. We've covered that. Uh, anything else? Uh, no, just really enjoying everything I'm doing right now. Um, my life is really heading down a great path through, uh, with Team USA, my job. I'm doing what I love. Um, I get to travel the world, the country, um, and it's 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 without people like Kelly, um, without your company, without the Gallagher Tompkins family, um, and all the mentors, Burger Bullets. Uh, I know Walt Berger and Eric Stecker. Without those type of people and their support of the shooting sports, you know a lot of this stuff won't be able to happen. 
Well, you know, it's been really great having you on the show. I really appreciate you coming out, Matt. I'm, I'm really excited for you. I know how prestigious being a, a coach on the Team USA is. Um, though that was never a goal for you, I know. I know you well enough to know none of this is about ego. It's just about doing what you love and having a good time and, and being good at what you do. Well, thank you very much for having me on, Kelly. Well, it, it was a great show. Really appreciated uh, having you on. Um, I want to thank uh, Matt for being here today, and I would like to thank all of our listeners for listening. I, I would ask you to stand by for a, a short commercial break, and we'll be right back with our next guest. Your internet flagship station for sports, Voice America Sports. For over 40 years, Macmillan USA has been at the leading edge of the gunstock industry. The company was born out of the desire to improve and perfect form, function, and precision with every one of their premium fiberglass stocks. From tactical to hunting to competitive shooting, Macmillan stocks are designed to dominate. Their signature three-way adjustable butt plates, adjustable cheek pieces, rail mounts, and adapters provide a versatile platform built on performance. Over 65 custom finishes are available, ranging from solid colors to camouflage. Check out the Macmillan website for hundreds of stocks available for immediate delivery. And for those wanting something more specialized, call the knowledgeable and friendly staff at Macmillan for a complete list of options at 877-365-6148 or visit MacmillanUSA.com. Again, that's 877-365-6148 or visit MacmillanUSA.com. The opening kickoff is a beauty. It's a fly ball deep right field. That goes O'Neal. He's at the shot. Got it. With 2.8 seconds left. to left. I don't care where they put him. This one is out of here. From high school to the pros, we, we cover everything. Let your voice be heard. Voice America Sports. You are listening to Taking Stock with Kelly McMillan. Now back to the show. Welcome back to Taking Stock with Kelly McMillan. Thanks for sticking with us. I've got a terrific guest on the line now. Um, can't wait to start this uh, session. He's been a friend of mine for a long time. He's a consummate businessman, uh, just a, a great outdoorsman, and I really want to welcome Charles Allen. Kelly, how are you today? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Just came in off the ranch a couple of hours ago and, and looking forward to, to sitting down here and visiting with you and your guests. So uh, how are we doing over there? We're doing fine. Uh, weather's great today. Going to be about 83 degrees, which is really nice for uh, Phoenix this time of year. That's why we live here. Well, I understand that. We got up in Texas this morning, and, and it was uh, about 50 degrees, uh, brisk. Wish I was turkey hunting, but I was out working steers instead. But uh, anyway, uh, great weather sounds like out there and, and as well here. What I'd like to do, Charles, is have you give us a little bit of your background, uh, explain to us where you grew up, what kind of education you have, how you got into uh, doing what you do. Sure. Well, I, not just my personal interest, but but my career 
has centered around wildlife in, in one form or another. Um, I, I did my undergraduate work at Stephen F. Austin State University in forestry with a wildlife option and then went back and, and got my, my master's degree in bioeconomics and, and uh, waterfowl management. And we built the first green tree reservoir in East Texas uh, back in the mid-70s. And then I went on to become a, a wildlife biologist with uh, St. Regis Paper Company, and I was director of their wildlife program uh, nationwide eventually, and and did that for 11 years. I went through a merger. Um, Champion International bought, bought St. Regis out, and then I went to work for Texas Parks and Wildlife, which was my, my first experience of working with state government. And I went to Austin and, and worked as the director of the wildlife division there for a couple of years. And then um, went on to, to form my own businesses in, in the sporting goods arena. And, and also I started a hunting and fishing lodge in Alaska called the Alaska Expedition Company. So um, that's, that's been sort of the career path of uh, uh, professional wildlife work. Um, I actually taught graduate school uh, at Stephen F. Austin in the evenings uh, while I was a corporate biologist. Um, had some experience uh, with the state. Uh, published uh, several articles, technical articles about wildlife, wildlife management. I've always worked with hunters, outdoorsmen, fishermen. Uh, it's a, been a great, been a great career, and I'm still involved in it, and I still love it. Well, it sounds like um, you're doing what you loved. I, I'm not aware of anybody that's gone into wildlife biology that didn't have a passion for or an attraction to being out in the the wild and 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 connection with animals and that kind of thing. I'm assuming you developed that as you were growing up in Texas. I did. Um, I grew up in a in a rural setting and uh, just. Uh, the guys that I ran and went around with and, and many members of my family, we all enjoyed the outdoors in, in the form of fishing and, and hunting, uh, hiking. Uh, those were all outdoor pursuits of, of the people that I associated with. And I, and I think it's also genetically, somehow we're genetically predisposed, at least some of us, uh, to hunt and fish and enjoy the, the outdoors. So, well, in in this day and age, I know that there's a, a bunch of people out there trying to reprogram us so that that hunting and fishing and outdoor life isn't part of our makeup. Uh, I know that I'm fighting that uh, with uh, both feet uh, in, so to speak. So uh, I know that that you feel the same way. You said you 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 got out of school. You spent some time, and what I thought was interesting about your your history is that you went to work as a wildlife biologist for a paper company. So why did they need a wildlife biologist? And explain to us how your role as a wildlife biologist benefited the uh, St. Regis. What I did was, um, as, because I had the degree in forestry as well as wildlife, I could, I could sort of jump back and forth, if you will, um, understanding that that a timber company's uh, main emphasis is fiber production, um, but but in the late 70s, there was 
a, a great movement, if you will, nationwide toward uh, more environmental concern. And timber companies own big, big segments of, and blocks of land nationwide. And St. Regis owned about 6.5 million acres of land, and uh, they were concerned about it from an environmental standpoint. And um, they brought me online, brought me on board, and I began working with our, our forest managers, our, our foresters, in developing plans that not only would accommodate timber production, but also would accommodate wildlife production at the same time. And, of course, the, the timber company's um, response to some of the things that we did were, well, how are we going to pay for this? How, how are we going to justify uh, forfeiting fiber production in some of these high side index areas uh, strictly for wildlife production? Well, it wasn't strictly for wildlife production, but, but uh, that was a legitimate concern. And, and because of my work um, and my master's work was with bioeconomics, that is, to try to develop a way for wildlife to pay its own way. And I know that's not a real popular subject out west, but in the south and, and across the southeast, timber companies and St. Regis in particular, who I work with, uh, we began working with hunting leases. And we would, we would take a certain percentage of our land uh, and open it up to the public at no charge. And then other areas, we would... Uh, lease our land to to hunting clubs primarily, and those monies would help offset some of the things that that the company did for wildlife management. So it, a lot of things boil down to economics. Uh, it's the same thing with farmers. Uh, if you look at <clears throat> what's happened to wildlife habitat nationwide, um, especially uh, in the, in the Midwest, uh, when you when you start looking at at what used to be grain fields with brushy fence lines and, and small timber lots uh, interspersed between uh, grain, grain fields. And now what you see in many areas is just mile after mile of absolute um, pure um, agricultural land with no emphasis for wildlife. And a lot of the reasons of, for that is a farmer can't justify it. And um, so what we tried to do, what we tried to do with, in the forest management area was to justify some of our actions, Kelly. Well, it's nice to know that big companies like that actually consider wildlife and conservation, even if it's kind of the lesser of two evils for them, and they're doing it from a financial um positive standpoint, it's still getting done, which which makes all the difference in the world. If they were just to go harvest all the timber that they could, and the only reason that they would leave any timber was standing was so that next year they would have some more to harvest, uh, that would negatively impact the wildlife. They know it. We know it. So... No matter what the real motivation is, the fact that they have somebody on staff to help them figure out how to harvest the wood uh, profitably and not negatively impact the wildlife, I think that's a good thing. Well, I do too. And a lot of the timber companies had wildlife managers, and to, to my knowledge, they still have them uh, nationwide, especially your larger companies. 
I hunted black bear in Oregon, and where we hunted them, up in Oregon, no no bear, uh, uh, you can't hunt bear with dogs or bait, so it's spot and stock. And the way we hunted them was up on the, the side of a mountain where the mountain had been clear-cut, and the bears come out to eat the fresh sprouts and the grass that's growing where they've taken these trees down, where for a long time, nothing grew underneath them because they were so thick the sun didn't get through. Now that they're exposed to the sun, a lot of fresh grass comes in. The bears come out in those areas, and that's how you hunt them. Well, so that's exactly I've right. Seen, got, yeah, I've You've seen got good visibility. What, mm-hmm. Yeah, go ahead. I've seen what uh, a forest. Um, can look like after it's been harvested. So depending on how they harvest and what their intent is, it can be devastating to the landscape. You look for miles and see nothing but the side of a mountain that's been clear-cut like that. It's incredibly um, hard to see how anything survives through that. But it's nice that they're thinking about what, what the uh, impact to the wildlife is and choosing how to do that that affects them the least. Well, that's true. That's true. Many of those clear-cut areas, uh, after they've been clear-cut, you're right, it looks like a nuclear bomb went off in there for about three or four years. And then once the, the browse and forage begins to grow back, uh, all of a sudden, rather than having a total overstory that, that you might only produce 500 pounds of, of usable browse per acre for wildlife, all of a sudden you're, you're producing three or 4,000 pounds. And so the wildlife can actually benefit if it's done correctly. If it's done in a patchwork form, uh, if the clear cuts are, are of a, not of a huge scale and, and doesn't cover the whole mountainside. Um, so that was one of the things that we work with. And anyway, once, once I left the timber company and, and went to Alaska and went sheep hunting for my first time in 1984, I uh, swore that if I ever had an opportunity, I was going to develop a, a, a way to, to work annually, be in Alaska, and be part of that great environment up there. It's one of the, the true last wildernesses in the world, and it is, it is just an incredible place up there. And I know you've been up in, into Alaska, and, and southeast Alaska in particular is uh, still, I mean, the bush is still the bush. And you get out there, and and you're looking at at habitats and 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 game animals and non-game animals that were there when Vetus Bering landed in in the mid 1700s. I mean, it's it's an incredible place to be. Well, my father was stationed at Elmendorf Air Force Base in 1964 to 67. We actually moved up there just after the big earthquake. And, yeah, I was just enthralled with the place when I was there. It was the greatest place to, to live as a kid growing up on an Air Force Base where, you know, we could run up to the, the little creek that ran through the base and fish for trout. We could even float down the river if, if we could stand the cold long enough to, to get a quarter of a mile float in and uh, play baseball during the summer and ski all winter. So it was a, an awesome place to live, and I got to do a lot of outdoorsy stuff while I was there. I know your experience in the outdoors prepared you for the first uh, commercial endeavor that you got in. Explain how that happened. Well, <clears throat> started started the Alaska Expedition Company in 89, and actually began investigating in an area called the Lost Coast, which is midway between <clears throat> midway between Anchorage and Juneau. 
Uh, more specifically, we're about 85 air miles east of Cordova, Alaska. And what we found there was an area that had a very low uh, hunter and, and fisherman participation in that, in that area. It was strictly a fly-in area. And my wife, Jody, and I uh, looked at it for a couple of years and then, and then decided to go in there and, uh, and, and put a lodge up. And, and for about three years, uh, we, we assessed the situation from a biological standpoint and also from an economic standpoint. And during that time, during that time, we actually lived in a tent uh, for up to six months at a time. And we were, like I said, we were 85 miles from the nearest small town. So we had a we had a lot of challenges early on. Um, I'm a pilot. I've been flying up there for for 26 years in Alaska, and 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 you learn a lot by flying in that state. That uh, that weather is very unforgiving. Um, but we had a great time doing it, putting it together. We've we've got a beautiful lodge up there now, and and take uh, take people silver salmon fishing, and I'm heading up there Monday. Um, going up and doing a little uh, spring steelhead fishing, and and just enjoy uh, enjoy the operation for a little while, and then come back down to Texas, and then go back up in late June uh, or late July, actually, and and then we begin our real season, which is uh, August September, when we bring our our uh, silver salmon fishermen in and and any hunters that we that we uh, guide. Uh, why don't you give us the website so that uh, our listeners can check you out and, and see exactly what the lodge looks like and, and all the information they need? That's at alaskaexpedition.com, and that is also our northern field testing area for our main company. Our main companies are Knives of Alaska and Diamond Blade Knives, and and those are our manufacturing operations, which are located right here in Texas. But uh, all of our knives are, are prototyped here, taken to Alaska, and then they're really put through their paces uh, by our guides and, and my staff uh, for the season. Well, dive, uh, Knives of Alaska has been around for quite a while. When, when did you actually start that company? We started, we started Knives of Alaska actually in 93, so it was right after the lodge was put together. And, and then Diamond Blade Knives uh, was a research project that we actually began with, with Brigham Young University. And, and that was begun in 2003. And that's been a great project. You know, Knives of Alaska has always been made in the USA. And, and our products are made from premium steel. Um, we've always had a motto. And that motto was finest quality outdoorsman's knives. And that's what led to the development of, of the diamond blade technology. And I know you know a little bit about that. Um, you've gotten to use, use those knives, and, and you've got some experience with the diamond blade line. And diamond blade is a, is a patented process that we developed uh, where we actually change the molecular structure of the steel and create a super fine grain structure in the in the knife edge, which allows us to elevate hardness without elevating the brittleness. And hence, at that point, it just becomes a matter of physics. 
and you get you get a longer wear before it goes dull. And if you use the right material to resharpen it with, it's no more difficult than any other knife, even though it's harder. And for example, we use ceramic or or diamond. So that's been a that's been a great great uh, career, and and uh, we feel like we make some of the best knives in the world. Well, for full disclosure, I have to let all of our listeners know that you and I have uh, had a business relationship for a number of years. The very first time that I ever became acquainted with you or any of your products was a friend of mine gave me a diamond blade knife, um, a hunting knife, and I was really so impressed with that knife, and I had been thinking about adding a, a line of knives to my um, store to go along with my hunting rifles, you know, when you hunt, you, you need a scope, you need uh, all this this stuff, and a knife is another thing that you need. And I wanted my customers to be able to come to me when they needed anything related to hunting. So I was in the market for having a knife. Uh, really had no idea you would be willing to work with me, but when I got that knife and I said, hey, this is the first place I'm going to check with, because if I have a knife made for me, I want it to be made just like this one. And it was such a great relationship from the very beginning, and I've really enjoyed the fact that, you know, my quality products and my name have always stood for the highest quality, and I had absolutely no doubt that when I offered a diamond blade McMillan knife that everybody would understand that that knife is as good as you could get, and I firmly believe that today. Well, thank you. Thank you for those comments. And, and I know you make incredible uh, stocks, uh, rifles. I owned a Macmillan, uh, pair of Macmillan stocks that were on actually uh, Hart rifles. I got those back in uh, probably early 90s, and I've had them all over the world, and they perform flawlessly, uh, just like the diamond blade and the, and, the, and the knives of Alaska knives do. But uh, it's, it's a great relationship working with you, Kelly, and, and you've got this, the same kind of a outlook on business that I feel like we do, and that is you put your customer first, you put the quality there, uh, it's American ingenuity, it's American manufacturer. And we stand behind our products before we do anything else. If someone has any issue with one of our products, it's made right um, every time. And I know you have that same philosophy. Well, as a point of interest uh, for, your, for your listeners out there, it's not launched yet. But come May 15, we're going to, to have a, a Alaska Hunt giveaway on the Diamond Blade uh, Facebook. Um, we're going to give away, and I'm going to be the master guide that, that is going to be taking someone on an all-expense-paid brown bear or moose hunt. It's going to be my and the hunter's choice, but but this is an incredible trip that's going to be uh, going to have a public drawing um, on YouTube or maybe Facebook. I'm not sure. I've got I've got people here that handle that social media stuff and know a lot more about it than I do. But, but to get the details on that, you can go to the Diamond Blade, DiamondBladeKnives.com, which is our website, and you can go to the uh, Facebook side, and it will give you all the details there about that, about that hunt. 
but we're looking forward to promoting a greater name identification for diamond blade knives and knives of Alaska and, of course, our Alaska operation as well. But some lucky hunter out there is, is going to get to go on a trip of a lifetime, and so we're, we're looking forward to there's no, no purchase necessary. All you've got to do is register to win. Well, let me um, encourage every one of my listeners to go to diamondblades.com. Is that with uh, S or not? Diamondblade.com? Diamondbladeknives.com. Okay, com, And get, you know, or go to the Facebook page and get signed up for that giveaway because I personally have hunted with Charles. Phenomenal Lodge. Awesome place to be. I happened to go there during the time that that they were having the largest silver salmon run in Alaska. So the fishing was out of this world. I, it just I can't tell you how great the fishing was, and the lodge is perfect for that. And it would be well worth your time to go to Charles's lodge just to fish, if that's all you wanted to do. As a matter of fact, when I was there. There were 12 Canadians that had come in from Canada specifically just to fish, and they, and they all fly fished. And, and, and I have to be honest with you, the, my first experience with fly fishing was there at your lodge. And the nice thing is, is I didn't have to be any good at fly fishing because if you accidentally drop the fly in the river, you're going to catch a fish. There were so many of them. But um, so the lodge is a great fishing lodge that just so happens to have a an, an incredibly talented guide who hunts um, both brown bear, moose, and some wolf. Is that correct? Well, we have primarily brown bear and, and moose. Uh, wolves are very, very rare uh, to see them. They're, they're primarily nocturnal where we are, and we just you just rarely see one out there, but but we we're quite successful on the on coastal brown bears and and big big bull moose. So it's it's quite a trip up there. And you're right about the fishing; uh, those silvers are aggressive, and and it's always uh, good anytime in August September. Uh, those fish run that river, and and the Sayu River is is really world-renowned for the Silver Run. And, uh, and, the, and the people that we take, the people we meet, the people you and I interact with, hunters and fishermen, they're the greatest people in the world. They, there's something about working with, with other hunters and fishermen. Um, I'm going to say they just got their head screwed on right. They, they, um, uh, they have a connection to nature that I think is what drives us and keeps us coming back. I mean, who else wants to go out there and stand in in uh, blowing snow or or driving rain behind a fifty mile an hour wind and and stand there all day and and maybe not see anything? Um, or if you're fishing, uh, be able to to withstand those elements. And you know, it's forty million. Fishermen in in the nation, thirteen million hunters, and they're just they're just uh, great people that that purchase your stocks and and the people that that purchase our knives. Um, you know they're they're a special breed. 
Well, Charles, we're almost out of time. I really want to thank you for being on. Thanks for being a true American and taking pride in the work that you do and, and making sure that everything that you do is American-made. I know that's important to you as it is to me. I want to um, remind our listeners that they can uh, check out all of the things that you do by going to the website, uh, Alaska Expedition Company. Um, that's Alaska Expedition Dot com. You can go to diamondbladeknives.com and knivesofalaska.com. Please take the time to look at all these websites. They're incredible. Charles is such a great guy. And I want to tell you, because he wouldn't admit to it, he's he guides every hunter that comes to his lodge, and he's very particular about making sure that each hunter has a great experience. I know mine was a once-in-a-lifetime type of thing, and I really appreciate that, Charles. Thank you very much, Kelly. It's been a pleasure visiting with you today and your guest. Thanks. I appreciate you being on. We'll have you back when we get some more time. Take care. Bye. Thank you. Once again, we've come to the end of another great show. I'd like to thank our listeners for spending their very valuable time with us. Remember, we are here next Friday on Voice America Sports Channel for another exciting episode of Taking Stock with Kelly McMillan. Get out and enjoy this great country this weekend. Goodbye for now. Thank you for tuning in to Taking Stock with Kelly McMillan. Be sure to come back for more next Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time at 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Sports Channel. The weekend is here. Enjoy yourself. We'll talk again next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Sports Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericasports.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.